0: I don't know if memory is ever completely without pain, but you want to arrive at the point where you can retrieve parts of your past without it being a lacerating thing. And the the reading of the classics and the meditating and and the yoga, those were all mechanisms which allowed me to access memory Uh, without it being painful, with it it being a, a source of power for me.
1: Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Grey in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today we have Mariana Torgovnik. Mariana, so happy to have you. Mariana is an author and we will be talking about many different things. She's written uh, two two different books, Mariana, is that correct? Uh, no,
0: I've actually More? written about seven books.
1: Oh, seven books. Today we're talking in particular about two, the memoirs, which memoirs. are memoirs, you like? uh, but you've written seven, so you are definitely a, a really big author. <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for
0: having me. I am so happy you're here. So tell us, where do you live? Where are you right now? uh right now i am in greenwich village in manhattan uh in new york you're city. In the city okay uh i live here for part of the year it's unusual to be here in the summer but here i am um and the other place i live is durham north carolina where duke university is because i'm a professor at duke
1: okay so in in the
0: summers you're in usually in the city and then... uh, sometimes yeah I, I i just finished directing a summer program here called duke of new york arts and media so i was here for for that and then my daughter has a birthday next week so i stayed <laughs> stayed That's in a... order to attend to a birthday party and then i'll head back to durham after that so are you a new yorker basically i am a new yorker i was born in brooklyn um, raised in Brooklyn, uh, my first memoir is about growing up in Bensonhurst, which is a somewhat notorious community in Brooklyn, um, and growing up Italian-American. Um, we left out my middle name, which is DiMarco, which identifies the Italian part of me. And I sometimes wonder, Marianna DiMarco is such a good name. I mean, yes. Why I, why I switched to Marianna Turgeneva? So, although I guess I know.
1: <laughs> so I'm like I'm Kendra Rinaldi. So Rinaldi is my name, is is not my Mary. I never changed my name. Rinaldi, which is also Italian. So I never changed my name to a Mary name. So I kept I kept my name. So well, that made, always that, have
0: a... that would have made sense. <laughs> You sense. could always you could always
1: uh, have the artistic name be whatever you want it I to be. Suppose, you know? uh, you could be just you know like Prince had just a symbol, right? Was his. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you could always be whatever you want, be whatever you want to be named. So Mariana, so you then wrote then this first memoir. So tell us about that memoir, the the first one, and then okay. uh, what is it called?
0: Well, the first one is called Crossing Ocean Parkway, and. Um, I it had a subtitle, which which I removed from the second edition. What was, titled, when was it? Readings by an Italian-American Daughter. Um, and it was a collection of essays about growing up Italian-American in Brooklyn. Um, in the era when I did, I'm, 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 I would guess I'm maybe... I would guess oh, I, love I love it i love
1: it i love it. Oh, i thought you were gonna say you were gonna guess your age i'm like i would guess i'm uh,
0: <laughs> uh no I was, I was growing up at a, at a, at a period when bensonhurst uh, the neighborhood where i was born uh, was was largely italian-american um there are always rumors of mafia connections which did not exist except on one particular street which still has mafia connections uh, called 18th avenue uh, but I, not not where I was growing up. I was distinctly working class. And so I was a working class Italian-American girl. And um, in those days, working class Italian-American girls were not expected to go to college. So I really, really, really wanted to go to college. And my parents really, really want, wanted me to be a typist. So there was a little bit of a conflict and a little bit of drama. Oh, there. so they
1: wanted you to have was a trade and not go to college, like be a typist <laughs> instead of.
0: Mm-hmm. It was conceivable to them because yes. of working class origins and uh, the southern italian um one generationness of the family so it was inconceivable to them and i really wanted college so um the that, that the first four essays in that book are about um being this italian-american kid from bensonhurst and having these ambitions and they're not being nurtured uh, by my culture um and how how i navigated that uh, i i kind of counterpoint my experiences with a racial murder that took place in Bensonhurst uh, in 1989 uh, when a, a young man named Yusuf Hawkins was walking through the neighborhood to f- find a used car. And uh, he was mistaken for somebody who was dating an Italian-American girl in the neighborhood and was shot. And this was a celebrated um, incident in New York. Uh, there were There were demonstrations by Italian-Americans. Uh, there was a trial, and and the young men, as far the Italian young men, as far as I know, were convicted. Uh, but it was a it was a celebrated instance, and it, mm-hmm. it occurred when my parents were visiting me in Durham, North Carolina. So okay, Italian American working class girl, and I find myself teaching first at Williams College, which is a very WASPy. Um, I just visited there last week, and I I didn't see a single uh, black person, which was even new- still so up to now, it's still that way. Yeah even still, it was really very, I mean, I had a, I've had a black colleague who used to say, the buildings are white, the people are white, the snow is white. You know, it it, it still seemed very much like that. And then uh, when I left Williams, I went to uh, Duke, which is um, a, a more diverse university, but at the time I joined it, not so very diverse. It's become very diverse since. Anyway, so it's about the cultural disjunction between those two things. And for me, the bridge was marriage to A Turkovnik, a Jewish American who lived on the other side of Crossing Ocean Parkway, hence Crossing Ocean Parkway. And then the second half of that book is critical readings of um, uh, The Godfather, the Mario Puzo novel, uh, Camille Paglia, the Italian American critic, Um, the use of the cultural we, which is a a voice that cultural critics use a lot. And then as I was finishing that book, my father died. And so I included an essay about my father's death. Uh, he died of lung cancer. And it, it kind of rounded it off. And I, I was I was quite young then. I was in my 30s when I wrote that book. It seems rather audacious to write a memoir, but it, it did very well. And I heard from a lot of people and still do. It spoke very strongly to uh, gay people, to Southern men. Um, yeah, it spoke, it spoke to, to a lot of people, and I, I would get letters from them. I love
1: what you're saying because the fact that even though you're you're telling your story as an Italian American growing up in New York, how our stories, like you said, can find common ground with someone else that's also living this diversity, and and then you're—I'm sure—with your then marrying also, then your husband growing up, then. In a Jewish right Jewish community he could even relate to things that you had also experienced. Yeah, that.
0: yeah. Well, Jewish culture is is somewhat notoriously in favor of higher education. So you know, for, it was it, it was a kind of a, a medium for me to enter into a sphere um, where my my intelligence my 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 skills was my admired
1: mm-hmm. were
0: valued. Mm-hmm. Um should I removed readings by an Italian American daughter, and this is this is odd. Um, The only negative mail I received about this book was from Italian-American men um, who totally misunderstood and thought that I uh, resented being Italian, which I don't, um, or that I I felt that I had been abused as a child, which I wasn't. I just felt that I was in a milieu where it was harder to achieve my ambitions. Mm -hmm. My parents were very loving. I realized later that in fact, I would not have gotten to go to college if they were authentically opposed. They just didn't know what it meant, um, and so it took a long time to negotiate it. In fact, when I, you know, at academic tenure is right when you get mm-hmm, you know,
1: that tenure. Uh huh.
0: When I called my parents and told them I had tenure, they said, "Oh, ten years! That's wonderful." <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, it was just it was it was a, a realm that was not, you know, it just wasn't in their cosmography. You that
1: know, you know. What you're what you're talking about the aspect of when we are being something like in this case of what your parents maybe thought you'd be the expectations they thought or had of who their daughter or children well you had more than it was with more than you um yeah, probably, how many yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um of what their children are going to be and their their expectations based on their own upbringing like you're saying you did you weren't judging them, right? But it was also these expectations of if you're going to be a mother, then what kind of job are you going to have so that then you can be a mother, a wife, because these are the expectations they had created, right? So their projection of your life was based on their own life, correct?
0: Uh, Italian-American culture has changed a lot mm-hmm. um, and as mainstream to a very large extent over the last 10 years. But if you think back even to, what was her name? Um, was it Geraldine Ferraro who ran for president, a uh, vice president way back when? She was dogged by rumors of mafia affiliations and other things that very much were stereotyping. Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo's father, mm-hmm. same thing. So um, Italian Americans have come a very long way over the last decade. Uh, but it was um, especially Italian-Americans who stayed in the neighborhoods to which they immigrated. Uh, they were very afraid of having their children leave those neighborhoods. And when Italian-Americans did leave uh, Southern Brooklyn, as they eventually did, now largely a Chinese-American community, which is an interesting replacement in and of itself. But they, they moved en masse to Staten Island, which is the only part of New York City, which is solid, pretty solidly Republican. And... Um, politically conservative rather than politically liberal so there's a kind of um, kind of a cohesiveness to the culture and I wasn't part of that cohesiveness
1: Oh, that okay well thank you for for sharing that kind of clarification now let's go back into your family dynamics then you uh, get you got an education then you became a professor you get married to somebody from the other side of cross <laughs> Uh, The other side of the track, as they say. Right.
0: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs)
1: Um, How then were all these things and the family dynamics, tell us what they look like after you started making all these different milestones and decisions in your life and the family dynamics between you and your parents and your sibling and your brother.
0: Oh, okay. Wow. That's, that's a lot. I, I think it, it, it differs for each for each each person. Uh, my father was the parent I most associated with uh, New York City. He was, um, I thought it was a very glorious profession, but it actually wasn't. He was a bank messenger, which means he carried things between bank branches. But I associated him with the city, and he prided himself on the knowledge of the city, and he took me places, so I always associated him with that. My mother was um, a garment worker. Uh, she was a good mother very good cook uh, famously good cook but she had been mrs odd she was born in america and then sent back to calabria in italy where she lived until she was 16. now calabria is still a very poor and very peasanty kind of uh, place so that's her story and she, and she was a not a sentimental lady i would say but a, but a, a good mother a loving mother uh, my brother was a solid I don't. I don't know what political demographic you, you your your audience consists of. my, my, my brother was a solid, was a solid Republican, and uh, I went to NYU in Columbia, and I was not. So we gradually grew apart. My brother and I just had different different backgrounds, different tastes. I, I mean, I was living in New York and North Carolina in, in university milieus, and he was um, he was in suburban New Jersey. He he, he drank, he smoked. And shortly after my mother died, he got pancreatic cancer, which is not a great form of cancer at all. That's Very what my mom passed away cancer. from, so I, I can understand yeah, it. Yeah, you what... know, I still don't know why it's become so common. Um, and he was, um, um, he, we, we had assumed a certain amount of longevity in the family because there had been extreme longevity on my mm. mother's side of the family. And, you know, obviously pancreatic yeah. cancer, it's, it's, it's a tough one. And he chose, um, like many people, including a friend who's entering the last stages of that now, he's just chose to kind of um, do the chemo all the way until it became actually too late to go to a hospice. And it was, it was hard for me because, especially after my mother died, I, I realized all the many things you don't say to people when they're still alive. And I really wanted to talk to him, and he was kind of determined not to talk. He was on his third marriage. I liked his third wife very much, but the two of them were just when I would I would fly up to see him, they just they they just didn't want to talk about it. But, you know, there, there was it was uh, he was in the hospital. He was getting chemo. Nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. We were just to talk as though we were in their living room, and for me that was that was difficult mm. and hard. So um, this book, Crossing Back is essentially about the difficulty of trying to mourn when it seemed to me these were ordinary losses. My mother was in her 90s, you know, an ordinary time to die. My brother, we hadn't been that close, so exactly why was I having such a hard time (laughs) with the grieving process? And so it took me a long time to figure that out. There were a couple of reasons. Um, One was that um, I'm, I'm, I'm temperamentally somebody who doesn't like to be in a position which seems vulnerable and being in grief is a vulnerable state. That is reinforced by a culture, Italian-American culture, which uh, is strongly invested in, you know, looking good for other people. And, you know, when people are dying in your family, it's not so Put bad. on your knickers, so be bad. a big girl. God. Yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta, 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 gotta show yes, a good yes, face to yeah. the world. Uh, and then the final thing, and this, um, this is the one which, I think was, no, there was actually two more things. One was that I, as a literary critic, I had been writing about World War II. Hey, a lot of people die in World War II. And it was hard to not think about everything that had happened, you know, 9-11, 9 11, the COVID crisis. It was hard to think about all the death in the world and to be invested in personal losses. It seemed to me somehow small minded of us. Okay. So, comparative, the thing, grief, I think also, comparative grief. Comparative grief. Okay. Comparative grief. Comparative grief. The final thing, and I think in many ways the biggest, is that um, many years before, um, I had lost a child in infancy. He died at three months mm-hmm. old. And I had never really grieved about one properly. And when my daughters were born, and, you know, I moved on. It wouldn't have occurred to me to continue to mourn the death of a child. But, of course, you do. Um, and that was complicating uh, the mourning process for my mother and my brother. It was very strange. And I, anyway, it took me a long time to unpack that. I did it by means that I describe in the book. Uh, so uh, it's not a how-to book. It's not a self-help book. But it does have some lessons in it.
1: Thank you for sharing all of those different reasons of why it was that you really did have difficulty in really expressing your grief or mourning, like you said, because grief just is like something that occurs and mourning is something we do actively towards. Uh, yes, inaction. but
0: you first of all, you have to accept, accept right, your grief. right? And- and, and know that that's what it know, is. You think, yeah, you think you don't have a choice. You think you have a choice, but of course you don't. What I did, in, in, and I, I talk about this in the book. I, I was moving like a lunatic. I moved three times in New York City and once in North Carolina. Well, boy, when you move, you keep really busy. yes <laughs> What was that about? Right. <laughs> Obviously, it was a way of, 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 of just not mm-hmm. facing things. Distraction.
1: Yeah. yeah the, the, the not non non coping kind of ways of, uh, of yes. doing, which are still Coping, just in maybe not the ways in which you would no. have chosen to. No, yeah, yes. yes. No. Just like no. how people may seek with alcohol or other, you know, things to deal with their pain. It's still a way of coping. It's <laughs> just maybe not the way in which we'll be
0: more yeah. successful
1: way of, of, of yeah. dealing with yeah. that, with that grief. Yeah. So when you then had the death end of your, brother so it was your mother then your brother uh and all of a sudden you have to unpack then this grief that of the your child which had had occurred how many years before you're three month old
0: oh wow a lot of years uh a
1: lot a lot, a lot
0: of years is 25 yeah. years and, and, a the, long and you time. know what
1: it's not uncommon of how you're saying because then you became a mom you know then after with your daughters then you're very busy, busy you were working you're kind of yeah. going through emotions that maybe yeah. just the time of really being able to sit with those emotions and kind of figure out how to be uh, was just not there had your other daughters been born already when you're
0: uh, no, so he was no, your no. First, first child, child. okay yeah, yeah it was a yeah. boy a boy a he boy. was your first child so yeah. um and that, and you know, and that's important too yes. because my I subsequently had girls, and I had, which was fine with me. I, I had a colleague when I was pregnant with my second daughter, uh, who said, "Oh, you must want a boy." And I said, "You, know, oh, you have no idea how stupid mm-hmm. that sounds <laughs> and how wrong that sounds." I didn't mm-hmm. say that, but I thought mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm.
1: you just want a healthy, you just want a healthy yeah. child at yeah. that point. Right? Yeah, a lot of times, yeah, sure, we, we invest so much in in the aspect of that genders and this and that, and uh, the, after you've experienced what mm-hmm. you went through, you just wanted a, you just wanted your child to be okay. So here you are unpacking then. So would you mind just diving? I know you dive much deeper in your memoir on the different tools that you use to navigate your grief, but would sure. you please uh, sure. share with us sure. some? Sure,
0: sure, sure. Uh, the first one was really a product of my being a professor of literature, and I thought I was being extremely original. Uh, I started a program of reading the classic books. I, I went back to Homer uh, and then I read Dante and I had taught both Homer and Dante. And then I was continuing on my journey through the classics when I realized that a lot of intellectual people do that. And so again, my question became, well, why do people do that? And I realized, I, I think there are a number of reasons they they do it. One is that classic books tend to change over a lifetime and so you can plug into them at mm. different moments, and and that's, that's one reason. But I also think it's because classics are about really unpleasant stuff, like killing your mother because she has killed your father, sleeping with your mother by mistake, uh, doing a social protest and ending up getting buried alive. Uh, Dante takes a journey through hell. Yeah. These are yeah. not these are not normal experiences, but they do amplify normal experiences. And I think that's why people read them and intellectuals read them because there's, a, there's an order. You do one, then you do the other, then there's Shakespeare, then there's Milton, then there's Alexander Pope, then there's Faulkner. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very stable order. And I think people like that. So that was the first thing I did. And then I started writing a book. I thought about reading the classics and I kept talking about myself. So I thought, ah, oh, it's not about reading the classics, but that was part of it, reading the classics. Could, may I um, ask the second you? I'm thing so that sorry, I... as
1: we're pausing. Sure. In the classics, which one was one of those? And I don't know all of them. Shakespeare, I know more, more of because I studied theater, but yeah. what, which one was one that you, when you were reading, stirred up some kind of emotions of your grief that you were feeling either you could relate to something the author was saying or how they expressed or certain phrases that might have stood out for you in your journey? Is there one that stands out of any that you read? Yeah, well,
0: there are two. Uh, One is Homer's The Odyssey, which is a book about coming home and has some very ugly scenes in it at the end, which I had conveniently not forgotten, but I hadn't emphasized them in my Well, memory. probably also
1: they weren't uh, relevant maybe when you read them. Sometimes when we read something again. No, no,
0: no. no. You yeah, like yeah, when we read something no, in a yeah, different yeah, yeah. space and yeah, where
1: yeah. we are in our life, they have a completely yeah, different yeah, meaning. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. But the lines that, that resonated for me, uh, the, the goddess Athena tells Odysseus's son, um, Telemachus, uh, it is a wise child who knows his own father. I I kept thinking it is a wise child who knows her own mother uh, because I was pondering very much the extent to which I was like my mother and what my relationship with my mother was. So that was one. And then the opening lines of Dante's um, Inferno, Inferno, I'll say them in Italian and then I'll Uh translate them. Uh, Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura. Oh, oh wait! No, what don't what don't translate. Means? Let me see if I can. Let me see if I picked up anything because I've been
1: doing Duolingo. Okay, <laughs> the mezza, the, the me, middle of our life. Okay, the middle, the middle, the middle of, the middle of, of our, our life is is one that we may think we have to go through the jungle and then realize we have to go through the sea something like that is what i, uh, I heard jungle and i like heard that. marita so tell us translate something like
0: that it's not it's now it, yeah. it's um in, in the middle of the journey of our life um i found myself in a confusing forest and uh, i lost my way I, I was confused that was those are very mm-hmm. powerful lines and and that that's what was happening to me. So those were the two classics that were um, most resonant Beautiful. for me. Thank you. Um, the, the thing which was extremely helpful, I had done physical yoga for a long time, like most Americans, and not the greatest yoga body, short arms, short legs, but I do yoga for an hour every day, and I still do it. But after my mother died, I started meditating every day for 18 minutes, and that was extremely important because it kind of chills your mind down. And like reading the classics, takes you out of yourself, gives you a longer perspective on things. Uh, just as you read the classics in a certain order, you go into meditation in a certain order. So it's like prayer. It's like doing a rosary. It's like chanting. It's it, it's a it's a calming. Like a ritual. It. it has a it's it's ritual. A affection. ritual. A ritual. A ritual. Yeah. And so those were the things that were most powerful for me. And. Um, when you meditate long enough, whether you believe in it or not, (laughs) it's very funny. Most people, so I guess you don't really try meditation unless you're willing to give it a chance. But when you, if you do give it a chance and you do it long enough, your breath slows down, you know, your blood pressure gets lower. And uh, there are certain tools, just simple breathing things that you can do to calm yourself down at any moment. Um, In fact, when I teach college and the students are getting all stressed at the end of the semester, I make them take a few deep Uh breaths and I say, oh, did you notice that? That's different, Mm -hmm. right? And you know, it's just, it's important to be able to do that. Um, So that was, putting all of that together was important to me because um, the subtitle of the book is Books, Family, and Memory Without Pain. And I don't know if memory is ever completely without pain, but you want to arrive at the point where you can retrieve parts of your past without it being a lacerating thing. And the, the reading of the classics and the meditating and, and the yoga, those were all mechanisms which allowed me to access memory uh, without it being painful, with it, with it being a, a source of power for me. Thank you so much, because this is the first
1: time ever in all the hundred and change interviews I've had, that somebody has used reading the classics as one of their tools in their grief journey. Oh, really? Yes. Because mm. the majority of us go yeah. straight to probably looking for that grief story, you know, a story of a memoir, of somebody yeah. that's gone through like somebody picking up your book oh, as yeah. a way of
0: anyway, yeah, So yeah. I, I did that too. I did that too. I, um, there's one, uh, there's a guy named Francesco Goldman who wrote a book called say her name. Uh, which I thought was an extremely powerful memoir of losing his fiancé in a freak accident at the ocean. It was a beautiful book. Um, You know, I mean, I read Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, but I realized I I was and I was not writing a grief memoir. Um, You know, I mean, I I was, but, and I wasn't writing a self-help book, but I wanted it i guess i felt i had discovered something that worked for me and i wanted to give it in case it worked for mm-hmm. somebody else that's,
1: that's that, no, was that basic is idea. that is awesome thank you so much for for sharing that now may i ask being italian american how did yes. and you mentioned rosary and you mentioned prayer how did the aspect of spirituality or religious beliefs play a part in your grief journey or how did it not how did it either help or impede your process of how you were grieving?
0: The, the religion in which I was raised, which was Roman Catholicism, I would have to say did not help because uh, I people say that once you're a Catholic, you're always a Catholic. And I think to some extent that's true. It upsets me very much when I hear someone disrespect Jesus or, or the church, even though I'm, not a, I'm, you're not practicing. I'm, I'm no longer a practicing Catholic. But the rituals of Catholicism are very... Uh, they're they're very formal. And in the Catholic mass services, which my father had, my mother had, and my brother had, it's very impersonal. There's a, you are to be comforted because we know that there's an afterlife. You are to be comforted. That's it. So when you don't
1: feel that way, did it end up feeling like you were doing something wrong in your grief journey if you're not feeling comforted?
0: No. no it it felt like I felt like I was participating in something that had no power for me the um the power of the the Catholic wake, which I understand it brings people together and there's there's inevitably some form of jollity breaks out and it, it it's a counterpoise to the wake, but the idea of 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 sitting with the body was also not especially helpful to me. I mean, I think it is helpful for people who are in that tradition and comfortable in that tradition. So these were rituals that were not potent rituals for me. What
1: brings comfort for some in their grief may not be what brings comfort for others. It is so unique. And so for you, what you had grown up in was not necessarily the way that felt the right way per se for your own grief journey, but it might've been for somebody else. It may be for someone else. And that is what we love. That's what I love interviewing people with different, upbringings and different perspectives, because sometimes we also feel kind of inadequate when you're going somewhere and you're told that this is how you're supposed to feel. And this is what is supposed to bring comfort. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, but I'm not feeling that way. Then this inadequacy about ourselves adds to that guilt and in that in our grief journey even as well why am I not feeling comfort in prayer? Why am I not and, feeling comfort right, in knowing right. there's an afterlife in my grief journey? And then we may right. judge ourselves. Right.
0: Of course, as a, as a writer, the writing was also oh. a comforting <laughs> thing for me. And I think probably for most people as well, because the, the writing, again, it's a it's, it requires order, it requires regularity, it requires uh, sinking into yourself, but not totally sinking into yourself. It needs to be controlled. To some mm-hmm. extent and um you know all of those things and, and i that's why I, I i don't i would not never disrespect um somebody who found Perfect. prayer uh, you know a, a a good mechanism because in many ways that's what meditation right. was for me i did i do find meditation a spiritual mm-hmm. exercise and I'm, I'm not a believing buddhist uh, but the traditions in which i meditate are loosely speaking hindu or buddhist again it's not an afterlife but there's a there's an energy in the universe and you, when you access that energy in the universe, you realize, well, that's in you, it's out of you. And, and, and that kind of vocabulary, what's in you and outside you, that is religious vocabulary. And so as a spiritual insight, it's, I think it's valuable. And I think it's part of why meditation was such a good practice for in me your, in
1: your journey. Thank you. Now take us into yeah. writing then this book. How was then that process <laughs>
0: cathartic
1: really in you uncovering all these things and in your, in your morning journey as you're writing?
0: This was the, this was actually, I would say the craziest book I've ever written. It's, 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 it's shapely. It's short. It's almost like a book of poems. It's, it's discrete essays that you could read as discrete essays. It took me so long to write. It took me, it took me so long to write 12 years well, but normally I write books in about four or five years, and they're much they're they're denser, much more research oriented books. But this
1: is denser in terms, yes, but this is denser in terms of the emotions that you had to access to be able to write,
0: too. This book was written in six different versions, had six different titles. And I I couldn't give it the shape it wanted. And then finally I said, man, I'm going to do this. And when I couldn't make it work, I just took it out. And there it was. There was the shape I wanted, uh, which was uh, learning to accept grief, uh, realizing that there were sustaining things in my life, my marriage, my profession, my, my, my children, my grandchildren now, and then accessing memory without pain. So once I took out what was extraneous, it, it had shape. And as a writer, there's great pleasure when you discover the shape of a book, and you say, ah, there it is. <laughs> you, you, "Yeah, <laughs> it well, time. it took 12 years to birth, yeah.
1: uh, and now many more yeah. years of people enjoying and, and so forth." In all these different times in which you're reading and editing and going back, is there judgment as an author? As you write, I've never written a book.
0: Oh, there's definitely judgment. <laughs> as
1: you're then doing this. How do you then separate a little bit to then see what is my reader looking for, not just what am I?
0: Well, one of the things you do, you put it aside, you put it aside, then when you come back to it, you're reading it. And if you're bored, you should take it out. So one of the things you do is to cut. But there's a kind of there's a golden moment when you're writing memoir, when you really move yourself and you may even be moved to tears and man you have hit pay dirt now that's that's that sounds very cynical but it's true you know and even though it's um it's grief recollected from a distance when you when you recreate that that's very very powerful when you publish with a press i hate to break it to the aspiring authors out there you finish the thing and if you're lucky you see it in print a year later so you have this imposed year of cop- of just nothing, and then copy editing, and then the page proofs arrive. And when the page proofs of crossing back arrived, and I was reading it through, I-, I just said, oh, hot damn, you know, this is good. This is good. And it was such a, it was really such a great feeling, you know, to have that happen. And again, it's a kind of, um, it's not the mourner's reaction, it's the writer's reaction.
1: I was just going to even ask in that editing process, when you're being told, yeah, cut this. I mean, you've written seven books you before, so you've been like... When they say, no, this chapter, da da da, but I really love it. Like, how do you detach? And, and there's got to be some grief component, even of any other type of book, when you kind of put I your see. baby out there yeah. and then yeah. an editor's telling you, no, take this part off or take this part. And even like you said, even the reaction of some people to your titles of then you were even re editing the title of your other book of taking off the other. So, gosh,
0: it takes a lot. It, it does take a lot. I mean, one of the things that I have found very helpful, and I was fortunate both with Crossing Ocean Parkway and with Crossing Back to be in a writer's group when I was doing them. This hasn't always been the case for me, but there's something very sustaining about having friends read and getting friends' opinions mm-hmm. and trusting friends' opinions as, as 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 you're revising. I've actually been very lucky in my editors. They've they've done uh, what I would call light editing. Okay. Uh, the the guy who copy edited Crossing Back had so much knowledge about um, Sicilian culture in a very specific way that I was actually in awe. I mean, there's a there's a kind of Italian pastry that my mother made. It, it's called a sfingi. It's, it's fried dough. It's a, a beignet. Yeah, a, the, the fancy name is a beignet. Um, But a a sphingi, it's it's ricotta and and flour, but you have to get the texture just right. So in one of my chapters, I use making sphingi, my mother's recipes in general, as a recipe, as analogies for writing. And the sphingi recipe, which was a very important recipe for my mother, so it was a very symbolic recipe for me. And I lost it. And I, 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 I was trying my mother's recipes and I was writing them into a chapter for this book. Um, and I, I couldn't find it. And then I got a, I, I received a text from my younger daughter, and it said, Mom, I, found- I did it. I found this sfinge recipe, and it was like World War II <laughs> ends in Europe. You know, the sfinge recipe has been found, so I I, I was able to make the sfinges and to recreate them. Uh, um, yeah, that's awesome. So this, there's, stuff, there's stuff. like the,
1: that. The, the part of even just that, the aspect of food and passing along that legacy and the memories yeah. that they are not only associated yeah. with a culture, but like you said, like they remind you of what your mom used to make on these things and yeah. the cultural things. Yeah, and this is a and, way we carry on.
0: People. Stepping into the role of the cook is to, again, it has sequences, it has regularity, it it it's in you, it's out of you, it's it's personal, it's impersonal. And so it has all the qualities of reading the classics and meditating. And I wasn't sure why I was making my mother's recipes, but it was important it to me that I do that's so that's
1: beautiful, like yeah, just for living.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, this this guy knew the whole story of sphingy and the variance in spelling uh-huh. and I this the, we were talking uh-huh. about editors and this editor knew all that and I said, Man, that is amazing. Yeah, Sphinji's
1: wonderful. Yeah, Thank you for sharing. They're that. really good. Uh, well, now want one uh now i want to thank you so much now tell us anything else you'd want to share as to who would be someone that would relate to your books either one crossing ocean parkway or crossing back
0: yeah well i think anyone who is uh i mean, crossing is a metaphor that has to do with moving from one place to another so anyone who's involved in some kind of conglomerate culture. And I think that's lots of people these days. If you're Asian-American and, uh, and married to an African-American or to an Anglo-American or whatever, any, anyone who's involved in that kind of uh, hybrid relationship, mm-hmm. I think, would find either book very powerful. Anyone who um, is experiencing loss or grief, I think, would find either book uh, very powerful. Um, they're, they're kind of there's humor in books. I mean, there's there's a uh, there's a tendency in my writing to go for the joke. So you know that's important too. Uh, there's a chapter in Crossing Back about uh, being an academic, a chair of a department, and what that's like. Uh, so uh, academics, I think, would enjoy that mm-hmm. chapter as well. Uh, Duke University is a school which attracts um. scandal and. Uh, I, I found myself in the middle of one, you know, kind of it's a long time ago now, but there it was. And I, I think I think I'm somebody who takes a lot of pleasure in writing. So I think anyone who's interested in yoga, this book would be terrific. Uh, anyone who's interested in Italian-Americans or Jewish-Americans, especially the first book, Crossing Ocean Park. That's awesome.
1: Thank you so much for sharing, yeah. because, yeah, sometimes it's like, OK, who is this book for? And a lot of times we may not think that we may associate with something in the book. And then we do find, like you said, these things no, that would no. relate. I think
0: Southern. Yeah southerners southerners really relate gay people really relate yeah asian american culture and italian american culture have a lot in common so there's a there's a kind of relationship there as well
1: i want to read one of the bits that somebody wrote regarding crossing back that i was sent here in your in the email about you mariana torgovnik looks back without anger but the compassion and acceptance even for herself at her life and successful career reexamining key elements of her past, including ethnic mobility, family quarrels, unfinished grief, professional crisis, moves, separations, and reinventions. She writes a new life narrative, a generous and relatable memoir that will chime with the feelings of many readers at this post pandemic time of reflection and emergence. And this was by Elaine Show Walter, a professor at Princeton University. So that right there, I think, summarizes for sure the crossing back and who can relate to that. And how, how amazing yeah. to hear, like, is it like when you hear those things, those those things, is that
0: like- yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely great. That's absolutely great. And I, I would stress again, cause we're all kind of emerging yeah. from something yeah. right now. And uh, for most of us, it's a, a, a movement a more expansive movement. We were constricted, and there was harm, and we're now having to assess what that harm is and how to readjust. That was a lovely statement by Elaine Showalter. I know. Like, how does it, it
1: feel for you when you read when you read <laughs> oh, the it's, things of? It's lovely. Oh, it's it's, it's got to be so moving to hear like when yeah. somebody's been touched by something you've yeah. written and. And what it yeah. what they take meaning out of it. So, uh, is there any last words you want to tell our listeners before we uh, close no, off?
0: No, I just wanna I want to tell your listeners to, um, to 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 keep on doing what they're doing, and and to, um, to just just realize that. There's always a chance to reform yourself, you know, and, and go for it. And I wanted to thank you for having me. I
1: am so glad you were here and I'll be uh, linking your website where people can find. Do you want to say other places in which
0: people can find your books? Oh yeah. yeah, they can. you can find it on Amazon and you can find it on Barnes and Noble um, uh, websites. Uh, I suppose in the, in the, in the brick and mortar stores mm-hmm. as well. And you can find, I think most people go to Amazon. So there's a Kindle. It, That's uh, the, the hard kindle costs almost as much as the hardcover so choose choose what you wish it's a university press <laughs> so they do that uh but it's it's, it's a it, it's a worthy read so i would i would kind of look for it and my website is my name it's your name and i'll put, I'll put that one yeah i'll put that one down blah, blah. thank you so much again
1: thank you again so much for choosing to listen today